Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. I am one of your co-hosts, Shobana Xavier. In each new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, we feature a new book that has just been published and is relevant to the field of Islam and Islamic Studies as it is broadly defined, and we have a conversation with the author. Today, we are joined by Shala Hayeri, who is an associate professor of anthropology at Boston University, to talk about her new book, The Unforgettable Queens of Islam, Succession, Authority, and Gender, which recently came out by uh, and was published by Cambridge University Press, so 2020. The book is a captivating uh, book on the biographies of Muslim women rulers and political leaders. Uh, utilizing both historical archives and ethnographic research, Hayeri responds and reflects on the legacy of the Hadith that says, never will succeed a nation as makes a woman their ruler. It includes stories of Muslim women leaders in classical periods, such as Queen of Sheba and Aisha, and, and in medieval periods, such as Queen Arva of Yemen and Razia Sultan of India. In historically situating these biographies and also their legacies um, of these Muslim women who were political and at a time religious rulers, the study challenges us to reflect on how gendered political authority rested not always on religious tradition, but also hinged on dynastic power and succession, as well as patriarchal familial support, as we see in many of the stories. Biographies of contemporary Muslim women, such as of Benazir Bhutto of Pakistan and Megawati Sukarnapurthy of Indonesia, further complicates how religious, legal, and political discourses are used as justifications or even weaponized against Muslim women's authority and power in political and public office. This is done at times by religious or even secular political figures and groups in these countries. The book is a great resource for courses on gender and Islam, but also will be of interest for those who write and think about uh, Islam, gender, politics, sovereignty, and much more. In our conversation today, we spoke about um, some of the biographies of Muslim women, especially Queen of Sheba and Queen of Queen Arva of Yemen, and some of the complexities and gendered ways in which they were portrayed by their chroniclers in their historical context, but also their lived legacy. We also um, discuss the contemporary examples of the book, such as by such as of Benazir Bhutto and Megawati Sukarnapurthy, and how their contemporary examples also further challenge the ways in which um, political office and gender is um, constructed, especially by non-women um, who are opposed to uh, gendered authority. Um, so without further ado, here is my conversation with Professor Shala Hayeri about her wonderful new book, The Unforgettable Queens of Islam, Succession, Authority, and Gender. Hi, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your new book, The Unforgettable Queens of Islam, Succession, Authority, and Gender. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm managing in light of everything. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you about your new book. Um, and we have a tradition in new books in Islamic studies that we begin our conversation um, with asking the author to share something a little bit about their intellectual history and what brought them to write this particular book. Sure. And um, lovely to meet you too. I mean, via uh, the recording. Um, and thank you for inviting me to be part of this endeavor. Um, well, I have to begin by telling you a little bit about, um, you know, um, my childhood as a, as a young uh, teenager. I was very interested in politics, mainly because my father was involved in politics and um, he was a part of the National Front in Iran and um, involved me in one of the meetings and gatherings and, uh, you know, poetry readings and picnics and all the rest. So I naturally became interested in 
politics, and he helped me actually very interestingly. Um, I remember this was like in mid-60s, 1960s, when uh, many of the uh, formerly colonized countries were becoming independent. So he helped me to make a notebook in which I would have the names of all these countries and their leaders and people who were involved in the liberation movements and freedoms and leading to the independence of their country. So I became, you know, personally interested in politics. And of course, professionally, um, I um, was always interested in politics, but two events particularly uh, attracted my attention and eventually led to writing this book on the unforgettable, regarding the unforgettable queens of Islam. And the first one had to do with um, the election of uh, Benazir Bhutto, the democratically elected election of Benazir Bhutto in 1988 in Pakistan. And I happened to be in Pakistan and I was doing some other, you know, researching other projects, but it was just so impressive to see this young woman uh, being so charismatic, talking, uh, going everywhere, and also to see the public reception of her, you know, the amount of flowers that were thrown on her uh, path, men dancing in front of her motorcade. It was just something I had not seen before. And I thought it was the envy of, uh, you know, many politicians. So that was important in my mind. And then later on, um, in 2001, I happened to uh, hear or read something about uh, women nominating themselves for presidential elections in Iran of all the places in the world, you know. And I expected to see something about them in New York Times, Washington Post, you know, in the public domain, hearing something about these Muslim women who seem to be defying the, uh, you know, general perceptions of Muslim women, but nothing about them. So when I went to Iran, I decided to make a little video about these women uh, who had nominated themselves for presidential elections. I wanted to know who they were and what they thought their chances were of becoming um, elected, you know, getting elected in Iran. One of them uh, was a very, very impressive woman, and uh, she was the she was a principal of a high school that she had established with her own husband, and she was also a public speaker. And while I was interviewing her, in the midst of our conversation, she made a reference to the Queen of Sheba, which, you know, of course, I had heard about the Queen of Sheba, but I had never really paid much attention to her. But what this woman did uh, imply to me her very um, intelligent, uh, smart, uh, you know, understanding of the kind or the tenor of the discourse in Iran. So she said, you know, we have here uh, in the Quran um, a country where it was led by a woman and she had this amazing, um, you know, um, uh, sovereignty. She had this amazing um, leadership. Uh, And that's very important for us. She kept referring to it. That's very important for us. So why can't I become the president of a country like Iran. So these two events um, sort of culminated in um, my story collecting uh, stories about women political leaders. Um, and it just started from there. I think that's very helpful after I've read the book, because you do have these reflections throughout the book, both in your introduction and conclusion, in terms of how this was important, um, and also somewhat of a personal journey for you in terms of locating some of these historical and contemporary narratives. Um, Can you share with us maybe some of your methodological process? Um, Really kind of how did you go about collecting the narratives you did? Um, And one of the things I think you frame in the introduction is thinking about um, both the ethno-history and a transcultural study, Um, and you're moving between both history and contemporary contexts as well. So how did you go about doing this? What were some challenges perhaps for you? Um, and was it hard finding sources, um, you know, um, sources particularly when they um, are about women? Yes. Um, well, as I mentioned, I was, um, you know, having an interest in women who have shown uh, authority, autonomy, self-confidence, uh, ambition, 
had charisma. And I must add, as you mentioned earlier on, that my actually my my family uh, individually, uh, my larger family um, had a lot of um, very uh, uh, very um, active, engaged professional women. So, you know, I had that image in my mind and I was just reading about this woman, as I mentioned, about Binazi Bhutto. And I started reading more and more about these um, these women. And somehow I thought that I have to find a way of putting them all together. And of course, I'm not a historian. I'm not trained uh, a historian. But then we know that the history of the Muslim world and also, you know, the history of other parts of the world up until perhaps the 20th century was written by men. So how to find information in these books that are written by men, about men, and about powerful men. So I had to search through that, and uh, I had uh, not actually that much luck with one of the uh, leaders, one of the women queens, Queen Arwa. But uh, eventually I was able to find something on her, and particularly um, a very interesting book written about um, the Fatimid women by two very interesting uh, professors from England. So I used that book and I met them and I interviewed them and I talked with them. Um, but about the other woman, um, medieval queen that I wrote, um, um, she's actually, uh, uh, you know, there's not much uh, available on her, but she's such a popular folk hero that even in, India today, there is, um, well, there are several books, you know, written, fictional books written about her, but also the national TV of India has been producing a melodrama, uh, um, dramatizing her life. So she's quite popular uh, in the Indian um, community. So these were the more historical stories of women that I collected. Um, and of course, I have done research in Pakistan, and as an anthropologist, we're more interested in the day-to-day life of people. We're in, interested in interviewing people, talking with people, having you know, uh, engaging in doc in in conversations, uh, and getting to know people. You know, the, uh, and part, you know, as as we say in anthropology, participant observations. You know, we have we 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 need to have that. We want to. Um, get involved with the lives of people. So I had these two different sets of informations, two different uh, sets of stories. Of course, I have collected a lot more stories of women that I could put it in my book, and I had to make a decision about how to um, limit myself to the life stories of these women. So here I was as an anthropologist trying to be faithful to my discipline and the rules of that discipline. On the other hand, there was the history of these very interesting women. So um, finally, and, and then of course, you know, we had the differences of political systems. In medieval times, you're you're dealing with a completely different political structure. It's more autocratic. It's more centered around the court, uh, you know, the royal court. Life is centered around the royal court. Whereas in modern times, you have the constitutions, rule of laws, um, uh, elections and uh, voting centers and and ballot box. So I had to go back and forth between these two sets of um, political system, these two different disciplines, um, which then created all kinds of uh, you know complications. But what I then decided, what I finally decided to do was to um, uh, to to focus on the dynamics of. Uh, the life stories of these women, that is to say how they became the ruler that they did become and what were the processes that they went through, what what were the path that they had to go through to get finally to wear the crown as it were. Um, So I have not focused or paid much attention to the policies that these women uh, have made whether they were successful as a political leaders or not, but, uh, but more on their life stories and how they tried to get into the position of power and the channels or the means through which they were able 
to get into that position of power. And I think you've, I, I know you're mentioning that it was a challenge because you're dealing with different historical periods, different disciplinary methods, but I think you did such a phenomenal job in bridging everything together. And I Thank really you. enjoyed both the historical context, but also the lived legacies of some of these women, especially like um, Razia Sultan that you mentioned, because it was really fascinating to see how either the, the myth or the stories of these figures continue to influence um, Muslim women, but Muslim societies to this uh, contemporary context. And that was also fun for me to read about. Um, and but, so... But may I just add one more thing here? I think it is important to, uh, from my point of view, it was also important to challenge some of the cliches and the stereotypes about Muslim women, the dominant narrative that is particularly uh, powerful in the Western world, but also in the Muslim societies themselves. You know, when they talk about women, you know, have to be covered, they have to be veiled. Uh, not that necessarily anything is wrong with that, but that the forced veiling or then the, you know, shunning women from the public domain or, you know, not allowing them to participate in the lives of the uh, community. So it was important to address and challenge some of these stereotypes from within the Muslim societies and also outside of the Muslim societies, hence to talk about the achievements of these women. Um, and I think the complexity and uh, kind of the individual narratives and entanglements really come out um, throughout the book and each of the stories of the different women. And so the book really, in terms of content, the book is really um, kind of hinges around this one particular uh, prophetic hadith, um, which is, um, says, you know, um, never will succeed such a nation as makes a woman their ruler. So can you tell us why you wanted to start with this hadith and how you wanted to respond to it by looking at kind of, um, you know, notions of um, gendered or female dy dy dynastic rule or sovereign rule or issues of succession as you do in the book? Yes, um, I have to say that I came through that hadith so, sort of indirectly because I had actually never heard about it growing up in Iran, though the general atmosphere of, of Iran and many other Muslim countries was such that it discouraged women from participating in the public domain or in political activities of their own countries. But I came through it through actually reading the story of the Queen of Sheba, which I found is fascinating. And then I thought, here we have this amazing um, story. And as I mentioned, you know, it was triggered, my interest was triggered by that Iranian woman who nominated himself, herself for presidential content, uh, presidential uh, office in Iran. And I thought this is an amazing story. So here we have this woman who is uh, given um, everything, you know, all bounties and, you know, prosperities. And on top of that, she's given a mighty throne by none other than the Almighty Allah um, itself. So why is that in the real life, we are so restrictive, so prohibited from participating in political uh, activities of our countries? Then I came across this hadith, because once I started reading about the um, powerful and ruling um, Muslim women, then, of course, I was led to the story of um, Aisha, the beloved of Prophet Muhammad, uh, and the woman who was extraordinary in her own times. She was the daughter of the first caliph, married to the, to the Prophet of Islam, and she had enormous amount of social capital, and she used it. She was um, very self-confident. She um, had a good sense of the right and wrong of the, you know, the nascent Muslim community, and she wanted to be influential in that community. Um, well, of course, you know, her participation in the Battle of the Camel, uh, taking arms against a ruling caliph and losing the battle, then changed the entire calculations that she may have made, and then it became um, a, a sort of a model held up to Muslim women to tell them to stay home, to be quiet, to remain invisible and um, voiceless. And it became progressively more and more oppressive uh, in the Muslim uh, countries, not necessarily 
all the time invoking this hadith, but invoking the very spirit of the hadith that was very popular. And as I said, I didn't really hear much about it in Iran, and I heard much about it here. So then I thought, here we have, you know, the Prophet of uh, Islam, Prophet Muhammad, has received revelations which deal with a woman leader and ruler. And the problem in that, um, you know, in those uh, uh, ayahs, in those revelations, is not so much, um, you know, her sovereignty, but it is her faith. So why is that this hadith that is really contested by so many of the uh, contemporary, particularly uh, Muslim scholars and leaders, became so popular and so, uh, um, if, uh, you know, effective that um, effectively pushed women behind the walls of their own country. So I here I saw that, uh, you know, sort of a, a, um, a contradictions or conflicts between revelations and the traditions, the traditions of Prophet Muhammad that is upheld, you know, uh, by uh, all Muslims, um, and then the revelations in the Quran. So it is at the intersection of these two that I was looking at the possibility for women becoming political leaders. And of course, in real life, as I said, as an anthropologist, I look and see what's happening in, in you know, in, in our lives. We have women who have actually become political leaders. So the question was, well, how did they get up there? And, you know, I mean, what were the other principles that might have enabled women to reach the zenith of power in their societies? And that is the political power of um, their fathers or a patriarch uh, or a sultan or a caliph. So here we have this intersection of tradition, revelations, and um, the pragmatics of um, politics and political systems in Muslim lives. So that hadith has become very, very contentious uh, in modern times. But then once I looked at it historically, I realized that um, it, for in the cases of the two medieval queens, that is to say, Queen Erwa of Yemen and uh, Sul Razia Sultan of India, um, this hadith was never invoked. Um, there was not uh, any objections, personal or institutional, on the part of the religious leaders. Whereas when we get to the modern times, we realize that as soon as Benazir Bhutto was elected to the office of prime minister in Pakistan, then the Jamaat Islami, that is a very one of the very powerful political parties in Pakistan, brought a suit against her to the Lahore High Court, which fortunately the Lahore High Court threw it out. But then the and then the same thing happened at the time of Megawati, at the time that Megawati Sukarnoputri was about to become the president. And she was very, very popular. So the question is, why wasn't it invoked uh, in medieval times for the medieval queens when they became the rulers, but it was invoked for the two of Muslim women when they had the real chance, and they did have the real chance, of becoming political rulers in their own countries. When you know, some of the arguments that are made for or against these positions is that when we look at the medieval times and the positions of these queens and their relationships to their fathers, or in the case of um, Queen Arva to her husband first, and then later on to the Imam Caliph al-Mustansir, we realize that um, these women individually did not pose any threat to the political hierarchy or the male power and privileges, uh, hierarchical and patriarchal powers and privileges. And they were far and, you know, few and far between. So they did not really pose any real threat that uh, would, to the, to the political uh, hierarchy. I mean, before them, there was a male, uh, you know, uh, vazir, I mean, a, a male sultan, and after them, another male uh, king. Uh, but then when we come to the modern times, we realize that there is greater awakening on the part of the women. There is greater demand for their political participations. 
there is um, um, not only demand for political visibility, but um, political participation and having a seat at the political table. So there, the collective agency poses um, a threat to the traditional male power and and uh, that is um, very threatening to the male hierarchy and to the male political power structure. Hence, we get uh, not only uh, the Hadith invoked against Benazir Bhutto when she first uh, uh, ran for um, the political office, but for the third time when she tried to do to run for the same office again, she was actually physically eliminated. She was assassinated because the threat was too real. I mean, had she had the chance, she would have won the election without any doubt. But then, you know, the the threat was so real that she had to be politically, I mean, she had to be physically uh, eliminated. So there are all these differences that when these hadith has been used um, strategically and politically and when it has not been used politically. When it was not used in medieval times, and I also have to say that um, the ma- one of the major reasons, not only that women did not pose any political threat to the, polit- to the male hierarchy and patriarchy, but that the power of the sultan trumped the power of the religious leaders and elites. Uh, the sultan was, or the caliph, was uh, or the caliph Imam, Imam caliph were in a much more powerful position, although there was, um, you know, um, the very um, and the, the the relationship between the political institutions or the caliph and the sultan and the um, religious elite or the religious institutions was um, very um, intimate, and often one led support to the other. Nonetheless, ultimately, the ultimate arbiter was the sultan, not the religious leaders or the religious institutions. So in that sense, the power of the sultan trumped the power of the religious leaders or institutions, and we don't see any oppositions in those cases against these ruling queens. And I think um, you've kind of laid out the landscape of some of the key figures or uh, women that you're talking about. I have to say, when I was reading about Queen Sheba, and you know, you think you know these are both Queen Sheba and Aisha are figures that you know people think that they know a lot about. But the story of her her leg and her hair <laughs> was probably one of. I mean, I enjoyed reading that part, but it really just shows kind of the example of how these women were really, the ways in which they were written about was really contested and really, you know, hinged a lot on gender. So did you want to tell us, you know, why people invested in her leg hair? Well, uh, look, you know, both hair and um, uh, the fact that uh, this made-up genealogy of one of her parents being a jinn um, tells us that, you know, her power was contested. Well, to begin with, hair is a masculine, you know, uh, a symbol, uh, as well, and a symbol of power for men too. You know, we see that this is represented in men's beard nowadays. So it it had to be gotten rid of. And then um, the fact that one of her parents, most people say, was her mother, that had happened to be a jinn. Again, you know, again, it gave her um, power, and that power was believed was perceived to be illegitimate. Therefore, you know, she could not have had power if she had real parents, right? So she had to have uh, some supernatural power to be um, in that position. But more than that, she has been made into a a sex object, you know. I mean, not only in the uh, stories of chroniclers and and biographers and historians that we read about her. I mean, the imaginations of these uh, uh, storytellers and biographers, it's really incredible what, uh, you know, what they have spun as far as the story of the Queen of Sheba is concerned. But when we come to the modern times, the same thing seems to continue, except that this time the focus is uh, placed more on her being a sexual, um, a seducer, a femme fatale. you know, a, a woman who is there just to um, make Suleiman 
to or to to help to, to you know um, deviate <laughs> to um, Suleiman to to seduce that is to say Suleiman uh, from his right path, which is totally not in the Quran or not in the real lives. Even if we look at this story in the um, uh, in the other uh, Abrahamic traditions in, among the Christians or the Jews, in the holy books, in the uh, holy scriptures, she appears as this very intelligent, caring, wise, diplomatic woman. In fact, she's the quintessential example of a good leader, regardless of gender. But in you know, in the imaginations and representations of her life stories or her um, leadership uh, in Muslim chronicles, you know, or in Muslim biographies or, you know, or in um, uh, historian books, she's appeared to be as uh, something um, less than um, a leader, less than a human, half jinn, half human, um, hairy, and, and all the rest. And it's actually, if I may say something here, it's very interesting as far as uh, her um, mention in the Quran and then in the storybooks or in the historian's account is concerned. When we look at the scriptures, whether it's the Christians or the Muslims or the Jews, the Queen of Sheba is mentioned as the Queen of Sheba. There is no name associated with her. It's only through her position that we know her. But when we look at the other women that are mentioned in the Quran, well, of course, there's only the uh, mother of Jesus, Maryam, is the only woman who is mentioned in the Quran, and there is a chapter um, under you know, her name. But then um, other women who are mentioned in the Quran, they are not mentioned by names. They're always placed within kinship relations. So-and-so's wife so-and-so's daughter, so-and-so's mother, and on and on. So never in um, um, identified either by name or their positions. The only one who is identified by her positions is the Queen of Sheba, and the Queen of Sheba is the queen of her people. Very wise, very caring, uh, intelligent, smart, diplomatic. Now, but then in the public domain and among the historians and chroniclers and biographers who have written about her, she is identified as Bilqis. Now, where does the name Bilqis come from? And what does Bilqis mean? Bilqis, according to Montgomery Watt and some other people, m m might have come from a Greek word, and by the time it got to um, Hebrew, it became uh, it was turned into Plegesh. Plegesh comes to Arabic and pe is replaced by be bilkes, meaning what? Meaning concubines. Again, she's identified by these uh, biographers through a position, and this time it's the position of a concubine. She's demoted from the position of a queen to a position of a concubine, um, and 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 also a concubine that is dangerous that, you know, has all this sexual, illegitimate sexual power. So it's quite interesting to see how her image has been converted and changed in the popular uh, domain and uh, propagated by, uh, you know, in medieval times by storytellers and in modern times by, by movie makers. You know, the films that we see of her, She's again a seducer, um, a femme fatale, um, and ultimately a sex object. Which is interesting because in the medieval stories we talk about, particularly Queen of Arva, she has the epithet of being the little queen of Sheba, right? And and then also Razia Sultan also inherits the name of Bilqis, right? Um, so what do you think is happening in the medieval context? Do you think historians are also... Um, similarly portraying women in these complex gendered or, you know, sexualized ways, or is there a shift in the medieval context to really actually focus on um, their sovereignty or their political leadership? Um, 
Well, it's it's quite interesting. Of course, I don't want to generalize too much, but as much as uh, I have read, but uh, it seems that um, not a single time those documents that I have read, and the most important one is Salabi of the 10th, 11th century, and then, of course, later on by uh, Tabadi, the famous historians. Um, um, in these documents, um, you never hear anything about her leadership. Uh, they're very interesting uh, interventions on the parts of these scholars uh, and storytellers. Uh, for example, when she first is confronted by this threatening from Solomon, you know, so, uh, Solomon, King Solomon, who um, is dumbfounded uh, when he hears the story of the existence of this woman in this land. Uh, uh, through his uh, so-called spy bird, uh, the hoopoe, uh, the hood hood, according to Muslims and, I mean, the Arabic and Persian trans, uh, words, um, he just cannot believe that. He was given all kinds of powers by, uh, by God. So he wants to make sure that he, the, 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 the information that he has gotten is correct. So he sends this threatening letter to the queen out of the blue and says, come, submit, or be destroyed. And of course, again, it shows the difference between these two leaders. She gets the letter. She's a smart. She realizes the real threat. She goes to her people, to her advisors, and she discusses things. She doesn't make a decision um, rashly, quickly. Uh, unthinkingly, she talks to her people. And um, when they said, say to her, and who happen to be mostly men, when they say, we're men of war, you know, you tell us, we'll just go and fight, whatever you do. And she says, no, very smartly. And of course, this is in the Quran. She says, no, when kings at attack a village, they make the people miserable. They ruin their lives from the top to the bottom. So I am going to send her gifts. Now here, then we have um, Suleiman. I mean, I want just to tell you the differences of interpretations and how these um, interpreters' uh, imaginations uh, run quite interestingly at times within the framework of the time sensibility, but sometimes beyond that. When uh, Suleiman hears the story from Hudhud, actually before he hears the story, the, the hoopoe is not present when he is uh, um, reviewing his military um, personnel. And then quickly, Suleiman, uh, you know, runs in uh, rages and gets into uh, anger, gets very angry. And he says, well, where is, where is Hupu? If he doesn't come, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to twist his head and then pluck his feathers and put him under the sun and uh, let him die. Well, this is quite harsh, right? So the Interpreters and biographers are thinking, well, for goodness sake, we have to find a good reason to explain why uh, Solomon be became so upset. And then the reason is, they say to us, that uh, the bird, Hupu, had the ability to see through the earth and see water under the ground. So Solomon wanted to do his prayers. And because there was no water, and he needed sol uh, he needed the hoopoo to tell him where to find water. Then he got very mad at her. So here, one, uh, the you know the first time they find to dismiss the anger and then find some excuse to uh, soften the harsh language of the king. And then the second time, when she sends the king smartly, intelligently gift, trying to create some kind of relationship avert this war against her people, what does Solomon do? When he gets the gifts, he gets very upset and he accuses the queen and her people of being vainglorious. Take it back, take it back, he says. What God has given me is far superior uh, than what he has given her. So then this time he sends another message to her saying that, look, come and submit or else. I'll come and 
remove you and your people in misery out of your your uh, domain. Well, now she is again the smart woman she is decides to take on a diplomatic and a personal diplomacy, and she goes to visit the king. While she's en route to see him, the king wants to have her mighty throne. And according to the traditions, they tell us the king was not wanting in any thrones. He had tons of them. He had 600 of them. But he still wanted her. The man who had just accused her of being vainglorious now wants to have her um, mighty throne. And of course, he manages through his uh, amazing military personnel, the Afarid, the jinn, and the people to get her thrown into her, his palace. Now, why, why would he do that? And whether or not this is legal? Again, the biographers have tried to find justifications for these actions. But they say it's quite interesting. Why would he usurp her um, mighty throne? Of course, there are symbolic interpretations we can have, but the legal interpretations is that, well, he had heard about this mighty throne and he just wanted to see what it is. Besides, he wanted to take it before because once she became a Muslim, then he could not take her property uh, legally. So he confiscated before she actually converted, before she became a true believer. And in that case, it was okay for him to take her her crown. So um, we see that how these stories are being spun by by the medieval writers. And at every step of the way, they have tried to find reasons that demotes the queen and promotes uh, the king. Um, in another um, uh, example is that when she, uh, she, you know, the queen of Sheba um, consults with her advisor, Sahlabi interestingly says that uh, that these these men are just so um, uh, so um, uh, indecisive. She has dominated them, and that's why she could rule on them. In other words, you know, if these guys were real men, they wouldn't have listened to her. Uh, so he goes on and on and trying to find reasons for why these men listen to her. Um, so um, I hope I have answered these questions. Um, I, f- I forgot the other parts of the question. Oh, no, that's okay. Yeah, no, that's super helpful. Um, I wonder if we could talk a little about um, the medieval queen. Uh, Queen Arva of Yemen. And I was particularly interested in her story because she maintained both um, a political, um, you know, dynastic rule, but she also had a spiritual one, um, particularly within the lineage of the Ismaili tradition. So can you tell us a little bit about her story? Sure, I'd be happy to. And also, I, I think you mentioned that earlier on that she was also known as the Little Queen of Sheba. Yeah. And what I just wanted to add um, to what I just said is that Although, uh, you know, in in the male literature, in the historians' accounts, uh, biographers, chroniclers, we see the queen demoted uh, as this powerful queen in the public domain, in the you know the folklore, the folk knowledge. She's in fact still upheld as this amazing queen, this um, very wise, uh, caring queen. Hence. Queen Arva is also known as the Little Queen of Sheba. Um, she's an extraordinary woman. She's really truly in, incredible. And of course, her story came to light, um, I think, um, earlier on the 20th century. Um, she was um, brought up by her uh, father, uh, by, sorry, by her uncle, and married her cousin. And then when her cousin became the ruler, then she was the queen consort. Um, but she was so capable, um, so smart, that, in fact, the husband, um, due to an illness that he had, he asked her to replace him to actually become a real ruler. But what she does is that she really tries, and all these women, the same thing with Queen uh, with Razia Sultan, they were actually quite aware of the public not just the elites and the rulers. All of them wanted to make a difference in 
the lives of their um, their people. So she she is apparently so well liked that people called her uh, their mistresses, and she was she has such a great finesse in dealing with uh, these three. Um, well, with, with with the with the very powerful Imam caliphs, the Fatimid Imam caliphs in 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 Cairo, um, she had great sense of diplomacy again and caring caring for her people. Diplomacy as far as her relations with these um, uh, 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 Imam caliphs in Cairo were concerned. But what happens is that when her husband dies and her son, uh, and leaving her with her sons. Then um, the caliph, Imam Caliph in Cairo, uh, well, first of all, she doesn't tell anyone about uh, her husband's death until she gets the permission from the Fatimid uh, Imam Caliph al-Mustansir for her to become the regent of her son because her son was too young. Um, And again, she continues to be, you know, not only providing spiritual you know, and, and economic or political support for her people and for the Fatimid Caliph in um, in Cairo, um, she manages her country so well that again, you know, uh, she becomes incredibly popular among her people. And she started, you know, as a doy and having some how some important uh, missionaries in her, uh, you know, uh, in her kingdom. To have relationship and um, trade relationship with other parts of Yemen and India through the uh, Indian Ocean. Well, when her son, when her, when she becomes the regent of her son, the Imam Caliph in Cairo very wisely realizes that there might be some discontent against her, particularly from other tribes in Yemen and in the community. So to give her extra support and power. He elevates her to the position of Hujja. Now, in the religious hierarchy among the Ismailis, the top is the highest is the Imam Caliph, who has both the position of a temporal and a spiritual leaders. Below that is the position of Hujja. So the Imam Caliph elevates the queen to the position of Hujja, something unheard of, something that had never happened before and has never happened since. So she becomes this queen invested not only with political power, but also with the spiritual power. And of course, you know, the caliph, imam, and other people at the time realized that they have to justify these actions. There was not any oppositions to this uh, action, but, you know, justifications were in order. So what the caliph says is that he had consulted with many of the leaders, religious and political, and had reached, had become convinced of the uh, religious knowledge, of the level of the religious knowledge, esoteric knowledge of the queen. Hence, it was justified to elevate her to the status of hujja, meaning a supreme authority and uh, leader. Now, another interesting theory that developed was by this scholar, religious scholar, also a poet called Al-Khattab, also contemporary of the queen, who also supported her elevations to the position of Hujja. And not only that, he developed this very interesting theory of the envelope, by which he means, he, he meant that if a woman reaches such level of knowledge and wisdom, she is no longer considered a woman. She is a man, even if her body envelope is that of a woman. So here you see that these two highest authorities in the realm, and at the time, not only did not oppose her elevations to the position of a status, but they justified that. And of course, all of it is very political. So here again, we realize how politics may trump religion, even though religion is used um, politically uh, and strategically as a way to justify these uh, actions. And she was um, amazing. She had the self-confidence. She had the intelligence enough to realize that at a time when the Ismailis 
uh, when the Fatimid, that is to say, in um, Cairo were involved in a terrible battle of succession, she tried to dissociate her um, line of um, beliefs, uh, uh, leadership, uh, religious leadership, uh, from that of the caliphs in Baghdad, uh, sorry, in um, Cairo, and established the position of supreme leadership, that is to say, Da'i Mutlaq, who then had the power to see this um, branch of Ismailism that has since continued to the present time. So in other words, this particular branch of Islam, that uh, Ismailism, that is split from the uh, Ismaili Fatimid early on, uh, you know, under the Fatimid in Cairo, um, she established that, uh, she, she, she fortified the foundation of that branch of Ismailism that initially was called as the Tayyibi, and then later on, of course, it again split, and now they're known as the Boras in, in, in India and Pakistan, but they own the very foundation of their religion to this amazing uh, woman who had the, force, foresight, the foresight uh, and intelligence of um, creating uh, the office of Da'i Mutlaq, who would then supervise and oversee this uh, particular branch of Ismaili Shi'ism. And I definitely enjoyed reading about Queen of Arbat because I did not know um, about her story or her legacy. And I think what's most fascinating with the two um, examples from the medieval queens, both Queen of Arwa of Yemen and Wazia Sultan of India, is that, you know, they're existing in a climate of just murder and poison and palace kind of conflict. And, you know, everybody's trying to make sure that succession goes their way. And so the political strategy and acumen of these women in navigating that landscape, a very messy male-dominated landscape, um, was very um, fascinating and so exhilarating almost to read about, right? Um, absolutely. Felt, Thank you. Yeah, it almost felt cinematic, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're really incredible women. I mean, um, I have just, I mean, I wish I could write more about them, but, you know, writing about these women in one chapter each really does not do justice to them. And it also restricted me because, you know, there was much more than I could say about them. Uh, but then at the same time, I thought it would be interesting to bring all of them under the same roof, so to speak, so that they could provide a, you know, a more panoramic view of the Muslim women rulership uh, in the Islamic cultures. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I felt it as, as I was reading the book as well. Um, why don't we go to the contemporary context and some contemporary queens we talk about? So you've mentioned Benazir Bhutto um, and her political context in Pakistan as really being the catalyst for or some of the catalysts for this book. Um, and I guess we could talk about um, Megawati Sukurnapurthy of, of Indonesia, and um, I'm sure may, many of our listeners may not know her story. So who is she and how does she fit into this narrative uh, that you are, uh, the story that you're telling us? Well, Megawati is uh, is quite interesting. Of course, you know, I had known about her as, as a uh, leader, but I really didn't know much about her life story. Um, and um, I... Um, I had, um, I, you know, I mean, as I said, I just followed her, um, her leadership. But then once I started reading about her, I realized what an incredibly complex, complicated, again, self-confident woman she is. She's very different from Benazir Bhutto um, in the sense that she is um, very quiet um, often she had this um, long silences, uh, which was interpreted by some as uh, her not really being with it, but she used that quite strategically. And then once I started reading her, her life story, I realized that um, she actually had quite a good sense about herself, about her dynasty, about her um, the time that uh, she had to actually get involved into politics because initially she wasn't that much involved in politics. As you may know, she was uh, the daughter of um, uh, Indonesia's um, 
in a uh, hero, national hero, who was involved in the um, independence of uh, Indonesia. And in that sense, actually, she and Benazir Bhutto are quite similar because both of their fathers were um, at some point heroes in their countries and pretty much involved in uh, the independence movement of uh, their own countries. But anyways, she was uh, only 17 years old. Well, before she gets even to 17 years old, she was very young when her father, who um, was apparently very much interested in having plural wives, and in that sense, he um, followed in the footsteps of his predecessors. He married actually nine wives, which is quite interesting for an enlightened uh, uh, um, contemporary uh, leaders, but anyways, uh, you know, Megawati's mother, Fatmawati, was the queen, was the woman when uh, Sukarno became the leader uh, of in uh, the president of Indonesia. But then, by the time Megawati was nine years old, Sukarno tried to have a few other wives and wanting to have them live in the palace, and Fatmawati left the palace with her oldest child who happened to be the first son of the family and uh, Megawati was left for three other siblings in the presidential palace. So from the early age she was thrown into the position of the uh, you know elder sister and perhaps caretaking and some people say that fostered that feelings of um, motherhood that later on became her uh, sort of symbolic um, uh, image, uh, symbolic national image. Um, and she was 17 years old when her father was overthrown, pretty much again like uh, Benazir Bhutto, uh, by uh, a man who was a friend and uh, of and a military leader of her father, who overthrew him and then uh, didn't allow him to have uh, any kinds of uh, state uh, support. And then, of course, by the time Sukarno died, then there was not any state uh, funeral for him. So she grew up initially being very um, um, isolated, uh, withdrawn, having witnessed her father's um, slide into, um, you know, forgetfulness, uh, neglect by the country and, um, and die uh, and become silent in a way. She actually married twice. Um, her first marriage was uh, um, um, with uh, a leader, uh, and she had two children by him, but then he died in a car accident, and she had another very peculiar um, infatuations with um, an Egyptian uh, 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 an Egyptian uh, uh, ambassador, uh, diplomat, and then, of course, that marriage didn't last long, and then she married her last husband. But what is important in these series of marriages and events that she has had in her life is that until she, her children grew up, she really didn't have much to do with uh, politics. And that's, you know, how she is known as the housewife. But then uh, in the 80s and uh, 1980s, that is to say, and interestingly, uh, encouraged by... Um, Suharto, she tries to get more involved in politics, and in no time she gets elected. So it's from then on that her political life catches on, and she seems to have great appeal, again, pretty much like Benazir, to the public, because the public has had the experience of having their leaders being unjustly uh, um, sidelined and eventually silenced, you know, uh, Zulfakar Bhutto was hanged, and um, Sukarno was actually left in obliv oblivion. So, for her, you know, to appear in the public domain had a tremendous public appeal, and that threatened Sukarno. And it's really interesting to see the dynamics here. What's also interesting in the case of Megawati that I didn't know was that Suharto also had a daughter. Um, whom he was very much interested in promoting to uh, the positions of power. And of course, I should say earlier on when Megawati was young, very much like Benazir Bhutto, was taken by her father to some of the 
state events and international events. So she was given a bit of a visibility by her husband, but not as much as Benazir Bhutto was. But here we have Suharto in power. Um, Megawati is gaining support and popularity and is threatening Suharto, who also wants to have his daughter, after he finishes the office, promoted to the office of presidency. And it creates a fantastic doc, uh, uh, drama and dynamics. And at the same time, again, as I mentioned before, we have to realize that these events happen hand in hand with the mobilization of women in the public domain. Indonesian women had become a lot more powerful, um, a lot more aware and public and demanding um, certain, you know, gender, uh, demanding gender justice and popular um, pub, uh, and public participation, uh, political participation. Um, anyways, um, Megawati does the unthinkable. That is to say, she challenges the president, Suharto, who had, like many of these authoritarian, quote-unquote, Democrats, you know, these presidents for lives in these countries, he had claimed um, the presidency for himself, you know, for the past six uh, rounds of presidency. So Megawati challenges him, and she stands for presidency. Now imagine, here we have a president who has almost absolute power in his country, even though presumably he is functioning within a democratic uh, society or within the constitution, you know, a democratic constitution. And you have the daughter of his former rival, whom he had vanquished, now challenging him to the presidency. Just imagine the um, the threat that he felt and the popular support that Megawati had. But and then it's here when we, you know, when she becomes gradually more and more powerful, and of course, you know, when Suharto is kicked out, and then uh, there is a real chance for her to get uh, into the office to get elected. Then we hear again the hadith is now coming into the public domain. Every media, every newspaper you open, you listen to, you watch, talk about, oh, the hadith that says that women cannot become political leaders. And if they do, then the society is doomed to, um, you know, is doomed. So um, she actually wins the popular vote. But here again, it's interesting to see that it wasn't just the religious leaders who um, objected to women's political participations or leadership, but it was also um, the political leaders, her own friends, who at some like uh, um, Wahid, Abdul Rahman Wahid, uh, um, uh, and other leaders who had supported her, who had um, had platform for women's participation in the public domain, who had championed women's equality turned against her. And it's very interesting to see that even though she had won the greater political, uh, uh, you know, um, popular vote, through some back channel winning and dealing, then uh, um, Mr. Wahid, Abdurrahman Wahid, became president, who had had far less vote than Megawati had. He became the president, and Megawati was sidelined. But then the popular uprising was so much that they had to have her vote her in as the vice president. And here again is an amazing dynamic between this vice president of a woman who rightly should have been the president and with her, his, her former friends, who is now the president. But soon enough, he turned into another autocrat, which I guess, you know, many of these people have the tendency to do. And then a drama, a, another drama unfolded, you know, unfolded in the political domain of Indonesia, eventually leading to Abdurrahman Wahid being impeached and kicked out of the office and Megawati becoming the president, the first head of the state in the Muslim world. And of course, she became very popular, but then... Um, for the next session, and many of the democratic rights that were again uh, 
try to be either uh, re-invoked or uh, uh, introduced to the country happened under the leadership of um, Wahid and before him Habibi. And then, of course, Megawati continued with those um, reforms. And she, in fact, tried to improve the economic leadership of the people. But pretty much to, um, to the uh, model, she is a caring leader, a democratic leader, a wise leader. Um, and, of course, she had this image of mother, Ibu, was very appealing to the public. And it is interesting, especially in the contemporary examples of uh, Benazir Bhutto and Megawati Sukurnaporti, that how religion um, and kind of the Hadith tradition is used as, um, you know, I'm not sure if weaponization is the right word, but as a test of legitimacy for, um, you know, political office for these women um, and how they had to negotiate it. Um, all such fantastic, um, you know, stories, so important. Um, I'm also very mindful of our time. So before right. we go, <laughs> I, I just would like to mention, you know, to just to support what you just said, which is very important because it, it wasn't, it is important to realize that there was these religious uh, parties who were actually political parties as well as religious parties who brought cases against these women, but also the political leaders, the, the so-called secular political leaders who had, Champion at some point, one point or another, the cause of gender equality, or at least some sort of equality, turned against these women themselves and lent support and or made alliances with the religious leaders or religious establishment against these women. Yeah, and that was very interesting to see, I think, and really made um, hit the point um, or some of the analysis that you're trying to get us to think about home, right, which is very important. Um, so, Shala, what are you working on these days? Um, hopefully, you're taking a break after this book has come out. <laughs> from you in the yes, future. I do have. I do need to take a break because even though this is summer, I have been very, very busy with many other works at the university. I am thinking about other topics, either along some creative lines, like the video documentary I made last time of these, you know, making something of these amazing women. But I'm just thinking along the same lines of authority, autonomy, leadership, uh, uh, political power, and all the rest. I haven't really formulated any ideas yet, but uh, I am thinking uh, generally along these lines. And if you have any ideas, I would love to have them. (laughs) I don't have any ideas, but I am inspired by your work. So I look forward to your ideas as they come out. Um, This has been such a pleasure talking to you and talking to you about your wonderful book, The Unforgettable Queens of Islam, Succession, Authority, and Gender. Thank you so much for your time, and I look forward to seeing you and talking to you in the future. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed these conversations, and I look forward to staying in touch and reading more of your um, wonderful uh, interviews. You're a great interviewer. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. And that was my conversation with Professor Shala Hayeri from Boston University about her wonderful new book, The Unforgettable Queens of Islam, Succession, Authority, and Gender. So hopefully you enjoyed our conversation and thank you for um, continuing to listen to our podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which is on the New Books Network. I hope you'll join us again next time. Take care.